Have you ever wondered why some business people are more successful than others? Welcome to The Mentor List, a source of sound advice with your host, David Lewis. The Mentor List specializes in interviews with top business minds. Listen to their stories, list their habits, and most importantly, gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentor List. Hi, welcome to today's show. Today we're having a chat with Martine Lett. Martine is the CEO of the Committee for Melbourne. She started that in March 2016. She's also held a number of senior roles, including CEO of Australian China Business Council, uh, Deputy Director of Lowy Institute for International Policy. She was the CEO for the Australian Red Cross and also the Diplomat and Policy Officer at the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Martine Letts. Okay, so Martine Letts, welcome to the Mentor List today. Thank you. Great to be with you. Well, thank you for uh, having us here on uh, Flinders Lane and I'm amazed at yeah, your beautiful offices here and high ceilings and yeah, it's great to be here in the boardroom with you. So I guess the first question for the listeners is just if you could tell them just a little bit about your story. Yes, well, Dave, um, I'm the product of a European migrant and a boy from the bush. My father was born in a very small place called Donald in Victoria and the Wimmera, and my mother was born in The Hague, but half Polish, half Dutch, and they emigrated, she emigrated to Australia with her parents in 1950. My father was always interested in the outside world and came to Melbourne on scholarship and actually studied modern languages. So when the European met the boy from the bush who was interested in Europe, that was an um, you know, indication to her that there were Australians that were interested in the rest of the world. <laughs> and uh, that was a, you know, a feeling that was very much marked my, my life and my career over the years. My father became a diplomat, a trade commissioner, and I had... Uh, been really quite inspired and energised by the trips that we did when, when I was small. Uh, I was actually born in Rome. Wow. We had postings in Hamburg, in Bonn, in Stockholm. Uh, so right from the start, uh, I was very much committed to Australia's engagement with the rest of the world and also really enjoyed the stimulation from constant change. And those that plus uh, the very importance of uh, still in gate of the notion of public service. I've always de- dedicated to the notion of public service. That kind of marked the career trajectory uh, that I've had uh, since um, I um, joined the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in 1983. Now, it is predicted that young people today will go through 17 career changes. I don't plan to have that many, but I have had half a dozen, uh, so that might make me slightly atypical. But yeah, and it's and it has the, the constant theme always has been public service and Australia's engagement with the rest of the world. We can't survive without it. This was always our destiny, and especially in times when people want to draw up the drawbridge because they're worried about the outside world. It's worth reminding that. Our very wealth, not only what we sell, but the amazing wealth of people that have come from other countries to create our very successful community and economy is a source of our well-being, of our wealth, of our happiness, and mm. will be so for the foreseeable future. Because it's, I mean, you know, 20 odd million people here in Australia, it's such a, from a population perspective, it's such a drop in the ocean in terms of the, the global population. Yeah, and it's, it's good to sort of 
guess, get a bit of context on that and just realisation that, you know, we have to be looking, you know, outward if, mm. if we're, um, if, you know, if we're going to keep up or, um, you know, what, what did you say? We're sort of well, dependent we, on... We, our, our prosperity and our wealth and our happiness depends on, on engagement, international engagement. Um, but it also, um, we also have the immense privilege of having the oldest continuing culture in the world here in Australia and also um, people who've come from countries with incredibly rich traditions, uh, particularly from Europe because that's been the major source of our migration, but more recently, of course, now also from our own region, from the Asia-Pacific. And you can't underestimate the importance to the health of this society and to our Future that because that 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 is sourced from our, our kind of multicultural, multidisciplinary background. It's um, today in the grand age of disruption. It's become a cliche, but it is true. We're being disrupted by technology more than ever. Uh, our traditional economy, which has served us very well, which has been in the export sector, particularly of um, of primary resources, and then the manufacturing economy for the future. The source of our wealth will be in innovation and in collaboration and in garnering ideas from around the table from as many different sources as possible. That's why it continues to be so important to not only educate the best and the brightest here, but to bring the best and the brightest from overseas to help work with us. And you mentioned the fact that we are a small population. We are only 24 million scattered across the world's fifth largest country. Uh, which is a, an island continent, and we're not going to get there if we don't continue to encourage people to come here to work with us to make sure that our, our future can look as good and as prosperous as it has in the last, say, 50-odd years. And I can see um, you know, you get a bit, of, a fair bit of energy when you start talking about collaboration and innovation. Did you want to drill down into that a bit more? Yeah, I, I you know, don't know whether you've ever done the Myers-Briggs test, but you, you, you get tested for whether you're an extrovert or an introvert or an extroverted introvert or an introverted extrovert. But um, I think for me, um, what I have found the most uh, productive over the years, starting at university, you know, what I got the greatest value and inspiration out of were the tutorials. And that was because you know, we, we got to kick around and debate, sometimes, you know, fairly um, in a fairly animated way, uh, some of the big issues of, of the readings that we were given. And uh, I got a lot of my ideas and my energy out of hearing from others or hearing other perspectives. And sometimes it would completely transform my understanding of what I thought to be true or the case. And uh, I found it absolutely fundamental right from university days to helping me be a really effective collaborator and leader. And we know now that much of um, the source of the future economy is going to be co-created. It's already happening now, particularly when it comes to the so-called, you know, innovation agenda and being agile and trying to you know always being kind of ahead of the curve uh, the, the other thing I might add is the um, when you're looking at um, the concerns that we now have that you know artificial intelligence is going to take over something like 40 percent of our um, of the current jobs and that's across the board and it's not just blue collar jobs it's uh, a lot of it now is in white collar jobs and even in, in medicine yep. diagnostic tools and that sort of thing the one skill that continues to be put forward as absolutely essential for 
jobs of the future for young people is the ability to analyse and empathise and, you know, share. So the so-called, you know, useless humanities education in some ways is far is more important than ever because it actually helps us think carefully about and debate what drives humans what what drives um what we do and what we want and and what makes us tick and how do we understand and put ourselves in somebody else's shoes and um those are the kind of soft skills that many many organizations that are doing serious research on this consistently say are required and uh, so you know it's um what you learn and how you learn that's more important than ever yeah and i guess soft skills i mean is that harder to teach because you can send someone off on a excel or a accounting type technical skill set and it's sort of a tick in the box i'm talking about critical thinking i mean they call it soft but really it's a misnomer so it's your ability to analyze and to think critically about a problem and you can do that through studying some of the ancient texts looking at the history of philosophy i mean in some cases when you're reading the old texts you know you know for a fact that some of their assumptions have been overtaken by events or by technology but the critical approach to understanding what is the number of this problem and how might we resolve it uh, that that's been something that has been you know required through the ages and will be required uh, into the future and one of the ways that you do that is through dialogue uh, understanding or turning a problem around or or, or, or clarifying something has always been um, more uh, productive through dialogue mm. Dialogue, and uh, that's not just you know two people. It can sometimes be a, a, a broader context, and uh, so I, I think that that's that soft skills is a bit of a misnomer. It's it's about being able to crink, to analyze, to think critically, and to pull a problem apart and put it back together again and to find the best solution. And just by way of sort of um, you know pausing here on skills, um, so what what are some of the qualities that you see of a good leader either now or? You know, yeah. going forward. First of all, um, you've constantly got to be prepared to continue learning. And uh, second, you must always be very happy with surrounding yourself with people who you know or you think are smarter than yourself. You don't want to be the smartest person in the room. You want to be sure that those around you are smarter, better, more alert or, or, or more knowledgeable. That is, I, I think, a, a great success. You have to be a good listener. I mean, you know, we've talked about dialogue, but that mm. obviously means that you also have to receive as well as transmit. Yep. And uh, those that are transmitters, more transmitters than receivers, might look like they're good leaders, but uh, they kind of run out of puff. So that's a, a sustainable leadership style is one which takes as well as gives. And it's also really, really important to encourage people to take risk. It's become almost a cliche that we live in a fairly risk-averse culture, contrary to the great centre of innovation, which still, I think, the world leader is still deemed to be in the United States, particularly Silicon Valley. But a great strength of an innovative culture is the uh, not to be rewarded for failure, but not to be penalised for failure or to be told from the start, you can't fail. And I think uh, within reason, and that's something also that I always encourage leaders to do, you know, get your people to take a few risks. Show that you too are prepared to take a few risks outside your comfort zone from time to time. Mm. 
Fantastic. So I just wanted to maybe step back a bit and talk through some of the career moves that you've had and how you've got into yeah. the position that yeah. you're in today. Yeah. So yeah, I apologize. I've sort of jumped jumped onto those questions a bit early, but and maybe just for the listeners also. So uh, as I said, my, my the, I guess the, the themes that have underpinned everything that I've done in my professional life have been a very strong sense of the importance of public service and uh, also being connected globally, being connected to the world. And that's partly due to the fact that that was the environment to which I was born. So, you know, I can't pretend that I kind of discovered this in, in some in some aha moment. It, it's kind of been the nature of my education. But I thought, but I was originally inspired by, as I said, my father who was born in this country town in Victoria who came away to school here in Melbourne and whose world was opened by you know, studying foreign languages by by being being really interested in, in engaging with the rest of the world, and he managed to combine it by being utterly committed to the welfare of rural Australia through getting involved in the commodities negotiations as a trade commissioner and as a working for prime industries, but also somebody who appreciated the value of foreign cultures and how they can enrich our own society. So I guess that was sort of my, my, my first inspiration. So having joined DFAT, I also found communicating with the outside world something that I really enjoyed and um, mm-hmm. you know, to the things that you're, that you're engaged in now. My first really exciting venture into that domain was to run a small community radio program at the Australian National University where I was, which was my first sort of contact with um, leading Australian journalists, uh, including people who are still writing today, like Paul Kelly and Munga McCallum, wow. yep. Michelle Grattan. These are people whom I interviewed at that wow. time, <laughs> who are still, you know, uh, up and coming uh, reporters, and really kind of uh, understanding, you know, get, getting a little bit interested in, in contemporary politics and in not only and not only what was happening in Canberra, but was also happening in, in the rest of the world through my own studies, you know, particularly uh, German uh, and French. But, uh, and, but but also that kind of also the importance of arts and culture because I also ran an arts and culture program and the and uh, that that would be that was sort of my, those my formational years so DFAT seemed to be the perfect fit I was very very lucky to actually get involved in the first really the first eight years of my life in what I considered to be one of the great important issues of the day, which has come back now and is very live in the standoff with North Korea and also the Iranian nuclear issue, which was arms control and disarmament. And you might recall that the 80s was the height of the Cold War. There was a great deal of concern globally about the, uh, the threat of uh, you know, mutually assured destruction and the, uh, the, the, the new hawk. Labor government decided that it wanted to become much more involved in, in Australia kind of contributing to uh, the multilateral dialogue on that, but it also helped underpin our uranium sales to make sure that they didn't um, get diverted for the wrong purposes. So I, I was very heavily involved in that through postings in Geneva, and those were multilateral postings. So again, lots of roundtable discussion, lots of resilience and patience, because there are lots of uh, different national positions that had to be reconciled, yeah. but also that it was just the, you know a really good thing to be involved with and so peak I think of that period was my involvement in the negotiations of a chemical weapons convention uh, it was a great alignment where the Australian government was extremely supportive uh, and we also were at a period where the major powers were in agreement that they didn't need chemical weapons anymore and Australia got the role of brokering kind of the negotiations and developing a clean text and that then became the last major treaty that eliminated an entire class of weapons. Wow. 
So that was a very, very exciting and satisfying period. And uh, I thought to myself, gee, it doesn't get much better than this. <laughs> I spent a bit of time also working in a ministerial office and uh, and doing, and then finally a role in, in Argentina as, as ambassador. But before then, I'd already started thinking about there must be a world outside the Foreign Service. I really enjoyed working in government, but I was very keen also to see whether those skills were transferable transferable into another environment. Yep. The Australian Red Cross job, which came up after that, ticked a number of boxes for me. I mean, there was very much about you know the humanitarian agenda and public service and community yep. service, but also with a very strong international template. I mean, it is one of the, if not the longest humanitarian organisation that has continuously existed okay. since the 1860s. Um, the International Red Cross uh, and Red Crescent Movement, or the original Red Cross was created in 1864 after the Battle of Solferino. Then national societies were started to create it, be created after that, and the Australian National Society began just after the outbreak of the First World War. So it is one of Australia's oldest humanitarian organisations. Wow. So a big responsibility. That, that was a very big responsibility that. because you know one of the one of the quirks of Australian of the Australian landscape is we are a federation. So trying to inculcate the idea that we were part of one big movement that needed to pull together and pull its resources rather than, you know, eight states and territories going off and doing their own thing. That was the big challenge for me. I, my, my predecessor had already implemented some very important reforms in the blood service, mm. which had gone through some problems because of different methods for test, testing for bloodborne diseases, which led to some, you know, rather tragic cases of transmission of Hep C and, and um, the AIDS virus. So he'd looked after the blood service and I then looked at our humanitarian services and decided that there was some economies of scale that were desperately needed. So that's when I kind of realised that I was very interested in being a change agent and just kind of doing something concrete, getting something completed and then handing it over to, to another person. So I was there for four years and we got there in the end. It took a lot of patience. My, 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 my negotiating skills that I'd learned at, um, in the arms control sphere came were very useful, although often I, it's very interesting. You learn these things and you forget about them because you're so impatient for things to be achieved. So we had a couple of cracks at getting it done and it flopped miserably. Yeah. So regrouped and started to consult again and to build a consensus around the change. So I was really delighted at the end of the four years that our council changed our constitution of the yeah. Australian Red Cross to make it a more efficient and effective organisation that could better deliver community services. Mm. And uh, I was very fortunate then to be offered a role sort of a little bit back more in my old foreign policy field, which was to be part of the new, the established Lowy Institute for International Policy where I was the deputy director responsible for business and organisational development. Again, kind of taking something and creating something new with it and, and yep. building something. So, again, that was um, a slightly different, a completely different role to the extent that it was no longer really policy. It wasn't really implementing programs either, but it was more building the capacity of the organisation from within so that it could deliver yep. some really good material. But there was also a very strong notion of public service there too. It was about connecting Australia to the rest of the world and helping Australians understand how important that international engagement was. So that was um, that was the Lowy Institute. So that was yeah. position number four. Although in DFAT, you know, you do change every three or four years. You go from post to post. Yeah. So yeah. you're kind of constantly, you know, learning new skills. You know, trying to adapt to a new environment. Uh, yeah. It's uh, it's very. It, 
there were a lot of changes in in, in the seventeen years of the DFAT as well. Yeah, and then and then uh, it was um, so the, the next organisation was again one which was federated. I don't mind admitting that that was very challenging uh, because I didn't know anything about China. That was a big risk. <laughs> and uh, but they wanted me there because they'd seen what I'd done with the Red Cross. This was based in China. No, this was based in Sydney. Okay. Yeah, the national office was in Sydney, but we eventually yeah. moved the national. The national office is now down here in in, in Melbourne. Yeah. But um, it was uh, about you know again bringing the various state and territory agencies together to work collectively. It became clear to me within about a year that they weren't really ready for it. So it was at a question of effecting an elegant exit by mutual agreement right. uh, because the organisation wasn't quite, you know, was, was much happier operating the way it had until now and, yeah. you know, continues to do very good, great work, but it's just a completely different model to what I was led to expect. So it's very interesting. You, you, do, you do sometimes need to be aware that what people tell you they want you to achieve may not necessarily be they end up backing you for, or they mm. may not. They may be looking to you to force an agreement that they can't reach among themselves. Right. So lesson number whatever it is now four <laughs> five. Do your homework. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Don't take something on until you're pretty sure that you have a very clear brief to proceed and that you have the required backing. And if you yeah. don't, get out as quickly as possible. Do you think the sort of state and territory type resistance would somewhat be less these days? Or do you think it's... Look, I think it depends. Right? It really very much depends on the maturity of the organisation. So um, for the uh, couple of things, for the Red Cross, there was a, a template from the International... Um, from, from the Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, which basically was a template for the strategic plan that a national society should follow. So mm. that was, if you like, easier because there was a guide there from head office, as it were, saying this is how a national society will perform most effectively yep. and you are only allowed to have one Red Cross in the country. You can't have eight or nine or ten. So that was one thing. The second thing was that, yeah, I mean, there was a, the, the Red Cross was travelling relatively well but membership was dropping off. You know, it wasn't, it was no longer, you know, a lot of the Red Cross backbone were volunteers, um, mm. women who used to meet in the afternoons and who would, you know, right. organise all their activities at a time when when, when the demo, when, when demographics changed completely. You know, a lot of young women would love to be involved, but they can't because they're working. And yeah. they, they, you know, so so the, the, the organisation hadn't quite kept pace with the demographic changes and the way in which Australian demography was altering. So it was the right time to say, how can we do this more effectively whilst not losing yep. that really important community engagement that is the strength and the lifeblood of the organisation. And for that, you needed to pool your resources. You couldn't have, you know, it was no longer justifiable to have eight marketing and communications departments when you could have, you know, one that was kind of arranging the, the basic messaging from one place and then devolved it to, 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 yep. to the rest. So I think sometimes, you know, burning platform is always a good way to start. You know, if you're losing money or you're not getting new members or mm. you can see your traction is slipping, yep. it's time to, to, to reflect, regroup and to reformulate and it was the right time for that organisation to do that. Yeah, and then, of course, it took 
a decade or more to affect cultural change. I mean, that's the other thing that one of the other things that I've learned is you can you can come in, you can make a change, you can you can change a constitution, uh, but then the work really starts. Consolidation actually affecting the the cultural change that's required for people to wholeheartedly embrace what you're doing is a is a is a very large and uh, and difficult enterprise. I'll give you another example from my foreign affairs day. So. When I joined Foreign Affairs, it was still just the Department of Foreign Affairs. And then it, in 1986, the Department of Trade and Foreign Affairs were merged and you sort of spun out the Trade Commissioner's Service and the policy part of trade yeah. became part of DFAT. To this day, that union is still not complete. Right. That was in 1986. That wow. was 30 years ago because the trade people think that they see the world from a particular perspective you know, despite the best efforts of ministers, you know, including people like Julie Bishop, who talks about economic diplomacy, and mm-hmm. you know, the, the foreign affairs side was always very keen to learn and to do new things. But there were, yeah. Yeah, it was, a, it was to, to this day, I think it's a challenge. And the AusAid that's now been incorporated into DFAT, yeah. I think that will, which is more recent, I think that transition is going to be more successful and happen more quickly than the one with the Department of Trade. Yes. So that's a, you know, it's 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 a. That's the other thing you learn. Just because you've changed the rules doesn't mean that people are going to wholeheartedly embrace them mm. or not try and get around them until such time as you've well and truly embedded the yeah. new way. It's, it's, it's really funny sort of listening to your sort of career progression and, you know, knowing what role you're in now. Yeah. It was always going so, to be this role. Absolutely. Well, well okay, so, so then people – so now, now I'm at the Committee for Melbourne. So ACBC, I had – one and a half people working with me. So I started my working life in an organization with a big, you know, with HR and IT support and, you know, a, a bureaucracy sort of providing a platform of support yep. that I didn't fully appreciate until I didn't have it anymore. Uh, then, 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 then going to Australian Red Cross, which still had a pretty big group of a, a, a strong fina- financial support, IT, HR, etc., through to the Law Institute, which was kind of building the organisation from nothing, and then to the ACBC, where I was practically a lone agent into the Committee for Melbourne, which is still very, very small. We have seven full-time staff and a couple. But um, but what I've also discovered is that where I, I get my biggest kick from working with a young team uh, and, right. you know, really committed, eager people who really want to make a difference, who are committed, who are here, not because necessarily it's going to earn them a heap of money, but because they just love the mission and they love the challenge yep. of, of, of doing really great things for, 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 for the city and, and the heritage of the community for Melbourne, which was always dedicated to building a better future for Melbourne and to, uh, dedicated to Melbourne's progress. So, you know, you, you already have people who are committed and hardworking and really want to make a difference through the very profile of the organisation. But Often people will ask me, you know, what's it like working for the Committee for Melbourne when compared to your initial career in foreign affairs? And I say it's a little bit like being the head of mission in a medium-sized posting because you, and increasingly, of course, cities being the kind of engine of the economy mm-hmm. and where everything's at, increasingly cities are representing like countries. Right. So, you know, Melbourne, Greater Melbourne, is really like... With, with its almost 5 million population, it's mm. like a small country. It's yep. the size of Denmark, actually, when you think about it. You yep. know? Uh, New Zealand is 3.5 million. Finland is, I don't know, 3 million. These are all successful countries in their own right that are continuing to progress. 
So to me, it's like being the head of mission of a medium, small to medium-sized post where just like when I was ambassador in Buenos Aires, I needed to be articulate and credible in covering Australian interests across the full range of different government departments, you know, the education sector, the innovation sector, transport, numerous Australian companies, the mining sector, we had workers' insurance, we had village cinemas, we had a a cross-section of Australian business, a cross-section of Australian enterprise, a cross-section of Australian policy interests, particularly in the trade and agricultural agenda. You You were the first line, you were the first contact in explaining your government's position and transmitting the position of your host government. Right. So you really had to be across a lot and extremely agile, very versatile and able to respond quickly. You know, you had to, you had big delegations coming to visit, you know, you had a small team of three or four people. So yeah. in some ways, this Committee for Melbourne role is not dissimilar to the role that I had. It doesn't feel unfamiliar or uncomfortable. It feels deeply familiar to what right. I was doing in foreign affairs. Mm-hmm. And also the policy side of it. You know, at the end of the day, what we're talking about here is what makes good policy? What do we need to be thinking about going forward? What are the strategies that we need to pursue to make sure that, you know, a country as remote as Australia, mm-hmm. what are what does it need to do really well in order to thrive? How does it need to connect? And, you know, a, city, a growing city like Melbourne in the vast Asia-Pacific region, which has now the, got the fastest growing economies in the world with a scale, you know, with two countries, billion plus, how on earth do we compete? How, how do we make sure that we can continue to thrive in that kind of hugely challenging environment? How do we, how do we kind of pick the eyes out of the opportunities? How do we find our niche? Yeah, just, just sort of from my own curiosity, I always see the, um, the most expensive cities in the world and tally, and I, you know, I always see Sydney and Melbourne well, for the last few years have noticed Sydney and Melbourne up there and in my mind it's not a great thing um, but does that sort of play into what you guys are doing yes, here of course. And- so yeah some of the scariest statistics so first of all um, one of my colleagues says name me one successful city that doesn't have a housing affordability crisis right okay so I think that it is a little bit in the nature of cities uh, and large you know, particularly large mm-hmm. cities growing cities that where people want to work, where much of the work is located in the CBD, uh, where, of course, then real estate is at an absolute premium, that you don't have a phenomenon where, you know, it's becoming harder and harder to live sustainably without going further and further out. Superimpose on that the fact that housing ownership has been, you know, it's been part of Australia's DNA you know, since the middle of last century. And, yeah, it's it's challenging. What, what do you do about it? Well, first of all, you um, one of the things that the Committee for Melbourne launched last year was our Melbourne 4.0 project in recognition of the fact that that uh, we are not only uh, are we about to be massively disrupted by technology uh, and by the fact that increasingly there's going to be sort of an agglomeration of, of people working together to try and sort of deal with with these issues, but that you have to uh, that that in, in in this new economy the spatial divide the social divide is deepening. 
So a lot of people are being left out of the new economy because they don't have the skills. They can't afford to live within, you know, the inner ring of inner Melbourne, the CBD, and a bit further, a bit beyond. So they're moving further and further out. Their needs to come into work are not matched by adequate transport infrastructure. So you know, there are some there are some pretty creaky bits that really need. Uh, some urgent attention uh, but above all we also that which is disrupting us can also be used to help us so we need to understand what are the smart solutions to some of these intractable problems and widening roads and building new roads is not going to be you know the solutions of yesterday are only partially going to help us with the challenges of tomorrow so yeah you, you, you know when, when we looked at when we tried to get people's attention about how important it was for Melbourne to understand that even though it had been voted the world's most livable city five, then six, now seven times in a row, that that was that there wasn't a burning, an emerging burning platform that we needed to prepare for. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned burning platform because it it is such a um, it's it's just the write ups in media that it, that it gets and the attention. You're right. It is. It is almost an opportunity in a burning. Platform. Well, for the committee for Melbourne, of course, one of the one of the one of the value propositions that we put forward that we earnestly believe in is that because we are not partisan, we never were, we've always been driven by a sense of importance of making a contribution to Melbourne's progress without in any way identifying ourselves with one side of politics or the other. And apart from that, you know, that's not something that um, if you are an organisation that is trying to think about Melbourne's future, you can't get caught up in the electoral cycle because that's mm. that, that acts as an immediate break on so many things as we know. And it's not it's just the politicians' fault. I mean, a lot of people like to blame the politicians, but it's in yep. the nature of our political system that you know a lot of that gets driven. A lot, a lot, a lot of these projects do get constrained by a shorter-term um, political circumstances. So that's one. But but that's where we say you know we we can provide an environment in which some of these trickier issues can be discussed in a Chatham House setting in a cross-sectoral way. So we've got members from business. From we've got six of the eight major universities. We've got uh, a lot of, you know, fabulously creative organisations that help also resolve tricky problems in the arts and culture. And we also have um, some some community organisations that deal with the consequences of success, like housing affordability crises, social problems, homelessness, etc. You know, how do we bring them together with the people that are actually uh, implementing uh, and guiding some of the big civic decisions that will shape the future of this city? And that's where we think that's where we think the committee for Melbourne has and can continue to add value. You know, when you think about some of the big ideas that have come out of the committee for Melbourne, the Docklands project was inspired by the urban regeneration in London, and it was the yep. London Dockland architect that came out here wow. to, to to who was actually brought out here by the committee for Melbourne. So is this and, the where they built the financial hub in London, the in their over their old docks? Yes, yes, on the tenth, yeah. And uh, and so, you know, even if some people might be a little bit critical about how Docklands was implemented here, when you look at the way it's started shaping now, you can see that it's organically now growing into something pretty fabulous and uh, and uh, increasingly people want to live and work down there. So, yeah. you know, now we've got a library and there's going to be a school and all these things. You, and you learn along the way about how to do something and how yeah. not to do something. And um, the other... You know some of the other major uh, programs that that we that we uh, we put forward were internationalisation and privatisation of Melbourne Airport. So that was all about realising the vision that Melbourne should continue to be a city of international significance and creation of the Bio Melbourne Network, which is the kind of 
area now biotechnology, biomedical research, um, advanced manufacturing, which is one of the industries that are the great industries of the future for Australia, where and Melbourne and that whole kind of Parkville precinct, etc., is a great source of strength now and in the future. Research, cancer centre, etc. One of the other things that we we also created, which is a wonderful institution, which would be, I think, also of interest to people in your program, is the Future Focus Group, which is a civic and business leadership program, which was always, which is turning 21 this year, and which was always, the basic premise was you bring young emerging leaders from different disciplines and from different businesses together, and not only do you help build networks and, 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 and relationships that will be enduring, but through that cross-sectoral fertilization of ideas, you come up with some fabulous projects and ideas, exactly the thing that we started this whole interview with about how important it is to collaborate and to, yeah. and to, and, and, and to co-create things and uh, how that not only enriches your own professional experience but also produces some fabulous ideas such as you know Open House Melbourne and yep. the International Student Welcoming Desk and the Free Tram Zone and most recently our absolutely sensational little project called Melbourne's Backyard where we invited emerging designers and architects to contribute to a design competition for making the Melbourne Metro building sites a place of attraction rather than a place of revulsion <laughs> and the winning entry designed this fabulous structure that's going to go over the Melbourne Metro building site in yep. City Square wow. with a basketball court. And the architects had the foresight to even think about what happens to the structure when the project is finished. And they even showed images of where they would put it at Docklands as yep. a public facility once Melbourne Metro was completed. Wow. So this is, this is, this is, this yeah. is where the magic happens. Yep. It's where the magic happens. And that was also a fantastic committee for Melbourne invention, um, yep. which is one of the sources of its great strengths. And some of the practical, not necessarily you know huge Docklands-style ideas, but the mm. little things that continue to make Melbourne a very special place. Well, fantastic, yeah. Um, and again, that advice about yeah, surrounding yourself by you know the, the right people, smart people in the room that is coming through. I love those. I love when I get a, whenever I get a chance, I go to those future focus group meetings yep. and see them. You know, creating. You know, that they, they, they have to pitch the idea, and then it's reviewed, and they have to find exit partners. They have to find collaborating partners, exit partners, funders. I mean, it's a whole. They have to try and bring the thing from the cradle right through to fruition. Yeah, in some cases they've succeeded. Some have been great successes. Others have mm. been flops. But yep. never mind. I mean, yeah. it was a learning experience, and and it's a again a safe environment in which you know there are worse places to fail than in that kind yep. of an environment. Yeah, it just sounds congruent with you know you know innovation and mm. have, have a go, and you know yep. you won't be if it fails, it fails. We'll try again. So yeah, just just some some of some of the more. Um, I guess standard questions. If we could jump back, is yeah. just some advice. So, is there some advice you received, or would have liked to have received uh, in your career that you could share with the listeners? This is going to sound really, really prosaic, but the best advice that I've received, particularly at times when I've been really anxious about something, has been just be yourself. Don't try and pretend to be something that you're not. So that goes to authenticity people will always know smell very quickly that you're being inauthentic the 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 other advice which is something that i saw which is the hippocratic oath 
<laughs> Above all, do no harm. That's uh, I think that that applies across the board to just about any endeavour. You know, sometimes people are very determined to do something which could be immensely damaging that really shouldn't be pursued because it's it's just got to be yep. yeah yeah too too, too too many casualties. The other piece of advice that that somebody gave me was. Don't forget to listen. Don't be a transmitter. Be a receiver. You know that's that's been something that uh, that's 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 really in various ways of telling it has also always been important. Right. And 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 I think you know when when and the be yourself advice. It's 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 also believe in yourself. You know, don't don't think you can't do this. You know, be be courageous, but do it do it your way. And then I, the, the other incredibly important advice that I would give to others is n- never lose your connection with reality ne- and never forget your roots and what you can learn from family, from different cultures. It's a, it's a be, be very always open to new experiences and new ideas. Yeah, it's all. It's quite grounding. And, yes. Yeah, um, yeah. And refreshing. It's yeah. Yeah. yeah th- thanks for sharing. Um, so the next question is around a quote. If there's a quote or a couple of quotes that um, well, you can share. Uh, well, I, the the the, quote, the quotation that I that I, I like because it stands on its own, but also is very very much linked to that. Um, what I've always been interested in is how do communities and societies deal with change, and it comes from voted by the observer as one of the 10 best historical novels ever called The Leopard. A very famous film was made of The Leopard with Burt Lancaster and a very young uh, Alain Delon. So it's an Italian classic set in Sicily in the mid-19th century at the time of the revolution and civil war when Garibaldi united Italy. And it was about the kind of demise of the old Sicilian monarchy and the birth of the new Italian Republic. And the, and the advice that was given was, if we want things to stay as they are, things will have to change. That's, it's an enigmatic quote, but it's, if you don't want to, but to my mind, what, how I interpret it is, if you don't want to fall backwards, if you don't want to be left behind, if you want the good things to continue, even if they look differently, you have to be prepared to change. Yeah. It's like, it's not a double negative, but it's sort of, yeah, it's, it really sort of expresses that everything's yeah, changing. Yeah, that so. everything's constant, in constant motion. And it doesn't mean that you, but, but, but for me, what, what I love about the context of that quotation is that you don't throw everything out from the past you know, it's well, it's really Hegelian. It's yeah. you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. That you will always be taking something with you from the past that's enriching and important. But it doesn't mean that you mustn't be, a, a, you know, really right ahead of the of the curve in terms of understanding what's what is the new and how you adapt it yeah. to achieve the best results. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, thank you for sharing that quote. And I, I guess you sort of jumped into a book. Uh, yeah. You mentioned The Leopard, which I'll be sure to link to. Uh, was there another book? Oh, book look, there are a couple. I mean, I've, I've, when I think about my, my reading, I've always found it, and that could be to do with the fact that my family and a lot of older people always said, you've got to read, you know, the classics like Dickens and Balzac and, and Victor Hugo. And what they all had in common were they were – massive historical novels that right. sort of capture the temper of the times but also societies in transition. 
and the negative sides of this, you know, you know, Dickens was about kind of industrialising England and all the mm. terrible things that happened. But out of that, of course, came, you know, modern technology. A lot of people left England and came, and, and it was a, the big migrations to yep. the new world. So there's a classic example of how things changed and morphed into something new. So that I think that was partly why I was very interested in those kinds of books and my favourites there, and in part also informed, of course, by the fact that I studied that my, my major at university was German language and literature. But there are some very interesting books. There's Berlin Alexanderplatz, which most Australians would know from a very famous series made by the very famous German director Rainer Werner Fassbinder about Berlin as a newer metropolis in the 20s and a society in deep transition there and the mm-hmm. kind of, you know, what then presaged the tensions that led to the to the Second World War, so between the wars, and it was a little bit of a warning about what was what was coming because of the stresses and strains that, the, that, that the, the society was undergoing. So then also the famous, the Thomas Mann, who was a great, great German novelist, and the family, the Buddenbrooks book, which is a, the, the, the chronicle of a family, very rich merchant family in one of the Hanseatic cities, and how they kind of deal with modernity and the new generation going forward and, mm. you know, the kind of decadence of a declining family but the emergence of, of, of a new society out of that. So that was also, I thought to myself, that, yeah, and, and, and the leopard was another great example. And then kind of moving forward into a more contemporary world, if you look at the novels of uh, Jonathan Franzen, Correction, The Corrections and, uh, and Freedom, these are also kind of big chronicles of... Mm interlocking families and characters and people you know in this in in in, the, in contemporary america who are dealing with the kind of evolution of the changing society and 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 the things like climate change and industrialization and the breakup of families and kind of the pressure of of, of contemporary life told through the eyes of various different characters who all seem completely separate at the beginning and then somehow all come together at the end. So these great epic novels yeah. about contemporary challenges um, faced by, by by dealing with the old and the new. That's the, Those are the kinds of books that I've always found really interesting that kind of make history come alive without being dry history or just a story. And, and I find it really interesting because we are chatting about this before we sort of started recording and it's some of some or most of these books you've actually read before so you're reading yeah. about change and the impact on yeah. you know um, societies and it's it's funny that that's sort of a passionate read but now this is really what you're doing it's what day. i'm doing yeah what um, i'm doing in a more contemporary setting and, but, and similar with your sort of career progression in these roles which have really made you well placed for this role so it's mm. like you're in your dream yes your dream job i think that's right <laughs> so that's yeah fantastic. No, that's great and and you know and melbourne is such a wonderful place and it needs to be but it, it yeah we, we we must never become complacent because we've got a jewel here we've got a treasure and mm. never take it for granted yeah well, uh, well i just wanted to yeah thank you for your time today and um thank you on the listeners behalf to, for um yeah making your time available and and chatting with everyone through your story and i've really enjoyed sort of listening in and asking a couple of questions and just just one final question which is the listeners that are um resonating with what you're saying they want to sort of find out more about you or more about the community uh, committee committee for melbourne yes. <laughs> how do they go about contacting you and who should sort of reach out 
Well, look, anyone who's interested in working with us on some of we, we've got we've got some really exciting work happening in uh, developing ideas around what Melbourne's strategic priorities are. They go from housing affordability through developing innovative ecosystems through to a direct link between the CBD and the airport, which is very popular. So we've got a lot of really interesting ideas where we need people to come and work with us. Um, so. Get in touch with us if you want to make a contribution. Get in touch with us if you want to join us as an organisation and participate in the Future Focus Group. Mm -hmm. The best thing to do is to really contact us through the Committee for Melbourne uh, website web address. Yep. So that's um, the uh, – it's – oh, my gosh, what's our web address? <laughs> you can find that. You, yeah, you, you can put that in your I'll outro. But we also – you know, we've got a, a – we, we've just appointed a Director of Engagement, Clive Dwyer, who's very keen to connect with – interested Melburnians. We're particularly interested in also getting young people involved in the startup community to work with us mm. because that's that's get, getting them around a table and, and talking about what their ideas are for, for the work that they're doing, connecting them, you know, also getting, getting connections between our more established organisations that might have some money to invest with some of the younger organisations that are looking for a buddy. Fantastic. But uh, anything that you want to do that contributes to Melbourne, either its business or its very vibrant arts and culture scene or its community, come to us and talk to us. We're more than happy to hear from you. Great. Well, yeah, thanks again, Martine. And for everyone listening in, tune in again next week for another great show. Thanks, Tim. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Mentor List with your host, David Lewis. If you like what you're hearing on The Mentor List, the best way to support the show is to just take a few seconds to leave a rating and or comment over on iTunes. You can also find further information about this show and links to further episodes at mentorlist.com.au. Until next time, this is The Mentor List.